The scripture reading for today's sermon will come from Revelation chapter 22, and I'll read the entire chapter. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light, of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evil doers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me, to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have the right to the tree of life, and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book, and if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things, these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Will you pray with me as we come to this glorious chapter of God's holy word? Let's pray together. 
Our God and our Father, how grateful we are for all that you reveal to us in your word. And particularly, Father, this morning as we come to this wonderful chapter in the book of Revelation, how grateful we are for your Son and for the fact of his coming return. We pray that as we read these words, as we delve into them today, that you, Holy Spirit, will be with us and illuminate their meaning to us. Give us understanding and change us, Father. Continue the work of transforming us by the renewing of our minds, even as we understand your word today, that we might not just be hearers, but more and more become doers of your holy word. And Father, as the As the word is proclaimed today, I ask that you give me help, that the words of my mouth and that the meditations of our hearts might be pleasing in your sight, because this is your word, and we revere it as we revere you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name today. Amen. Well, I hope that this brief foray for the past few weeks into the concluding chapters of the book of Revelation has been helpful to you. I hope that it's been encouraging to you all. I wanted to do this. I wanted to revisit these chapters in the middle of a, of a series on the minor prophets for two main reasons. One, because our ongoing study there of the 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament is so focused on all of the ungodliness and injustice and wickedness that corrupts the nations of this world. And God's hatred of all of that sin and His purposes of judgment for the nations, we we also need to remind ourselves that God, this God, is sitting on His throne, reigning in righteousness over all of it, and that He is victorious over all of it already, and that He will ultimately triumph in final victory over all of it, which is what Revelation is proclaiming and describing, and that he is working out his ultimate purposes, not just of judgment, but also of redemption for the whole creation, which is what we've been seeing these last several weeks. And so secondly, it's so important for us as redeemed people who are living in this world and in a nation, even the great nation of America, one nation under God, that is now becoming more and more ungodly. It's so important for us as we're living in this world where all of this wickedness and ungodliness are raging more and more around us to keep in our minds, as Paul says, even in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that we need to be looking to the things that are unseen and eternal and not primarily become preoccupied with the things on earth that are seen, but transient. So often it's so tempting to get overly focused, overly fixated, either on the treasures of this world or on the troubles of this world. And both of those things can very easily distract us from the eternal kingdom and righteousness of God. And from our calling in this world to be salt and light in this place that is spiritually corrupt and dark. Remember, this world is not our home. We're pilgrims here. 
We're sojourners here. And our inheritance is not of this world. We're not here to lay up treasures. We're here to be salt and we're here to be light. And salt is most needed where freshness is most lacking. And the light always shines most brightly in the darkness, does it not? So we're not, we're not here to be comfortable. We're not here to store up earthly treasures. We're not here to be primarily concerned with earthly things. We're not here to avoid earthly troubles and trials. We're here to be salt and light. We're here to be concerned with and consumed by the kingdom and the righteousness of God. We're here to bear up our crosses. We're here to count the cost of following Jesus. This week, there was a fairly well-known Christian podcaster who made some waves when he told Christians who were living in California that were stupid. Literally. Yeah. And he was serious. He's actually written a book to this effect, saying that the way we need to fight the evil empire of states like California is to, is to flee from California, to abandon it, to let it just go down in flames spiritually. And I just thought, praise God that he didn't have that same approach with this whole sin-cursed world. That instead of just abandoning it and letting it just completely disintegrate, He sent His only begotten Son into this dark, corrupt world in order to lay down His life for the lost. And we're Christians, are we not? Followers of Jesus Christ who did that. And He calls us to the same cross-bearing, cost-counting kind of discipleship and the only way that we do that the only way that we follow the way of the master is to keep our minds and keep our hearts fixed on him and on the things that are above and not on the things that are of this earth Colossians chapter 3 right again on the things that are unseen that that's got to be our focus by faith not on the things that are seen 2 Corinthians chapter 4 because the the things that are seen are transient they're vapor they're ephemeral they don't last they're not worthy of staking our hope to we have to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus himself because he is the author and the finisher of our faith who uses the trials and troubles of this world to strengthen us, to purify us, to help us run the race with endurance, Hebrews chapter 12, right? And the book of Revelation is a massively important God-given resource not to scare us to death about the evil that's in this world, but to make us rejoice about the fact that Jesus is victorious over it and to keep us focused on the eternal kingdom and righteousness and victory and inheritance that is all promised and all guaranteed to those who follow Jesus. All throughout the book of Revelation, Jesus is at the center of the focus. And if you read this book and you think that something else is central, then you're reading it wrong. Jesus is the one who rules. Jesus is the one who reigns. Jesus is the one who is sovereignly orchestrating everything 
as He opens the seals and works out all of history according to His own good purposes. And at the end of this book, He would have us know that enduring in this world without compromise and standing victorious and triumphant with Him at the end of it all means knowing and confessing and trusting and focusing and and living like everything is always all about Jesus. That's what life needs to be. Everything is always all about Jesus. He's the sovereign one. He's the worthy one. He's the triumphant one. So last week, we were given this final glimpse in chapter 21 of what lies ahead in our future when Jesus returns and judges the whole world and destroys the current heavens and earth, dissolving them with fire, as Peter describes, and makes all things new, right? A new heavens and a new earth where only righteousness dwells, a new Jerusalem, which is His purified bride, made perfect as a dwelling place for the Most High God. This eternal reality where where God will dwell in permanent, unending, incorruptible blessing with His perfected and purified people as a husband dwells in oneness with His bride. So we saw the church. We saw the bride of Christ pictured symbolically like a living temple where God Himself will dwell in our midst forever. And we learned from that vision that the bride of Christ in eternity is going to radiate all of the glory of God forever, having been perfected and purified and sanctified. And that the church that the bride is, is going to consist of people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation all gathered together as as living stones built atop the gospel foundation of the apostles who have revealed the true gospel and the true word of God and and the truth of Jesus Christ who is the cornerstone that holds the whole thing together and that none of those living stones, not a single one of the living stones in Jesus Christ is going to be left out. The temple we saw was precisely measured in order to indicate its perfect completeness, its wholeness, it's portrayed in that beautiful imagery to indicate its its perfect and complete holiness also. No impurity, no corruptibility, no possibility of decay, of depravity, of any kind. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, verse 21 of chapter 21 said. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false Only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. That is the great eternal future and hope that is laid up for the church, for the people of God, for the bride of Jesus Christ, as we will be perfected and purified and glorified in Him in order to constitute this this everlasting dwelling place where we will be blessed in His presence forever. And so that brings us now to chapter 22. And the first five verses of chapter 22 here today kind of sum up that great vision of the purified, perfected bride, the glorified, sanctified church and people of Jesus Christ who are going to be his dwelling place for eternity. So look at verses 1 and 2. 
Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 22 say this, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. And also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. This river that's pictured here, the river of the water of life in verse 1, has been prophesied of already in God's Word. Back in the Old Testament book of Ezekiel in chapter 47. Ezekiel saw, and he saw this uh, a half a millennium, 500 years before the birth of Jesus, when he was in captivity in Babylon, Ezekiel saw the same kind of vision that John now sees in Revelation 22. It's a vision of a perfect ultimate temple where perfect ultimate sacrifice will be made for sin and where no form of corruption or pollution or unrighteousness or holy unholiness could, could ever come in. Ezekiel saw that same picture. And in Ezekiel's vision, he saw coming out of that perfect temple a very peculiar kind of river. It was peculiar because because it got deeper and deeper as it flowed, even though there were no tributaries flowing into it and supplying it. And the further the river flowed, the deeper it got, and, and it gave life everywhere that it flowed. And for centuries, people in the Old Testament wondered, what exactly is this a a picture of that God is revealing through the prophet Ezekiel? And it's not until we get to the New Testament that we learn that the temple and the river and the water of life that Ezekiel saw were all prophetic revelations of the Messiah, of Jesus Himself, and of His body, of His bride, of His church. Jesus is the one in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, right? He's the one who became flesh and and tabernacled among us, as we saw last week from John 1.14. Jesus is the truest temple of God, who was raised three days after they tore down His body. Jesus is the living water. He says of Himself in John 4 and verse 14, When he's speaking to the woman at the well, he's the one that wells up to eternal life so that when we drink of the living water that he is, we'll never thirst again. So in the opening verses of chapter 22 here, John sees this river and on either side of the river he sees trees, trees of life that gave fruit not just seasonally, not just occasionally, but perpetually, year-round. And eternally, for it says, the healing of the nations. And again, all of that comes straight out of the vision that Ezekiel had. He saw the same thing. Trees that give perpetual fruit and food for the healing of people from all around the world. And of course, when Jesus came, he proclaimed himself to be the true vine. Who gives life to the branches, John chapter 15. He proclaimed himself to be the true food who gives life to the world, John chapter 6. And in Mark chapter 2, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus is the great physician who raises dead souls 
to newness of everlasting life. You see what John is, is seeing in this vision of this river and these trees? He's seeing Jesus in picturesque form. The river of living water, the ultimate tree of life, the true food, the true drink, the one who has brought healing, ultimate healing, and eternal life to the nations. And Jesus has done that through His church, through His bride, to whom He is united in covenant faithfulness, in whom He dwells and through whom He is pouring out the living water of the gospel to the world and for the life of the world. And with whom He will abide and dwell in perfect peace and communion for all of eternity. That peace, that communion between God and His redeemed people is summed up in verses 3 through 5. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face. His name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. They will need no lamp of or no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. That's that's the reality of when Jesus returns and makes all things new and perfectly purifies and glorifies His bride and and abides in us and and with us forever. There's not going to be any more sin in in the whole created order or in us. Nothing in the creation will be cursed. It will only reflect and radiate and be filled with the presence and the glory of the eternal holy God. You remember back in the book of Exodus that Moses couldn't even look on the face of God, on the fullness of the glory of God. God gave him a a, a mere glimpse from from behind the cleft in the rock, and even that glimpse caused Moses' face to start glowing and, and radiating the glory of God so that he was terrifying to the people and he had to put a veil over his face. But in the new heavens and the new earth, we will look upon the triune God face to face. We will see Him and His name will be forever stamped on us, sealing us forever in His power and in His strength and in His glory and And by His grace, there will be nowhere in that glorious new creation where the radiance of His glory is veiled or grows dim. It's just such a wonderful, beautiful, hopeful portrait, right? Of what awaits us when Jesus returns and makes all things new. And so see, this is what we need to focus on. This is why the Apostle Paul who plunged himself constantly into pain and turmoil and trouble and darkness. And this is, why, this is why Paul, when they said, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. They're just going to arrest you and kill you. Said, oh, well, then that's exactly where I need to go, right? Remember? He suffered so much in this world. And then he said in Romans 8, 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time aren't even worthy of comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And so, see, when we, it's when we come to understand this glory, as the book of Revelation is, 
describing it to us that we, that we come to understand how Paul could say something like that. It's worth suffering the worst that this world has to throw at us when eternity lies ahead, abiding in the presence of our God, beholding the full effulgence of His glory and resting in His lavish blessings and reveling in the light of that glory and grace forever. Forever. Whatever you suffer in this world won't even hold a candle to it. And so while we wait, while we sojourn, while we struggle, while we suffer all the tribulations that the book of Revelation shows us, we do it with our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus and on the eternity and the glory that He's preparing us for and preparing for us. Because it's always all about Jesus. Spurgeon said, you might think that you can live just fine without Jesus, but you cannot afford to die without Him. Unless we live for Him now, we will die without Him eternally. To die without Him is to die without our names being written in His book of life. And and last week we saw what that means. Without our names inscribed in that book, by His grace alone, through faith in Him alone, there is no hope because the only eternity anyone will ever know without their name in that book is an eternity of judgment in the lake of fire. And to live for Jesus now in this life means to truly follow Him, doesn't it? To truly be a disciple of Him. And that means loving Him more than we love anything else in all of this creation, including our own lives. It means being willing to forsake anything and everything and choose Him and His glory above anything and everything else. Being willing to suffer any loss for the sake of gaining Him, Paul says in Philippians. Being willing to count any cost and bear up any cross and being willing to submit humbly and and even joyfully to the trials and tribulations that He ordains for us in this world because they are forging this kind of unconditional love for Him and faith in Him. And to do that means keeping our eyes fixed on Him always, walking by faith in Him always, and seeing with crystal clarity the great contrast between His holiness and righteousness and all of the sin that has stained and is corrupting this world. So, in the book of Revelation, God is urging His church. God is urging His bride to have a true perspective on our lives and a right perspective on our circumstances that keeps Jesus in all of His sovereign majesty and holiness at the center around which everything else revolves. And to have this true perspective also on the wickedness in this world and on all of our true enemies, Satan, who poses as an angel of light but wants to destroy us, and and the beast who signifies, as we've seen, the kings and governments of this world that pressure us and persecute us and try to deceive us and tempt us to compromise. And on the false prophet, the world system of false religion, false teaching that would lead us astray from true faith in the true God and the true Christ, the true gospel, the true holiness of God. And on the harlot, 
Babylon and all the seductive ways that the world tries to lure us in to putting our trust and hope and confidence and joy in the things of this world instead of in Jesus and His eternal kingdom and righteousness. God wants us to have a true perspective on them. He's urging us to see Jesus in all of His glory as our victorious champion and to see ourselves in Him as His bride who He's betrothed to Himself, who He fights for, who He protects, who He defends and prepares and equips and washes and clothes and strengthens to be able to endure even as we suffer and to remain pure even when we're tempted and to not compromise or come to resemble the harlot that is this ungodly world, but, but more and more to come to resemble Him as He prepares us for the wedding feast and for this eternity in His presence and in His glory. This is what the book of Revelation is given by God to do. It's given to help us see Jesus more clearly and to love Him more and to hope in Him entirely and to be clothed in the beauty of His holiness so that we can count the cost, so that we can run the race, so that we can endure to the end. Now, the rest of chapter 22 here is, is sort of an epilogue to the book of Revelation as a whole, where, again, the glory and majesty of Jesus is highlighted, and we're exhorted, as we remain in this world in some very specific ways, to walk by faith and to run that race and to seek first as the defining priority of our lives, the kingdom and the righteousness of God. Chapter 22 reminds us that Jesus is the true and ultimate prophet of God and revelation of God. The very word of God incarnate who has, verse 6, revealed to us what must soon take place and the very nature of the God who He is. In verse 8, John's been seeing and hearing all of these mind-blowing, magnificent things that this angelic messenger from heaven has been showing to him, and, and he gets completely overwhelmed by all of it, and he falls down, he throws himself down at the feet of the angel who was showing all of this to him, and he starts worshiping the angel, but the angel rebukes John in verse 9. Don't do that, <laughs> the angel says. Because I'm an angel, and the word angel means a, a messenger. I'm a servant. He says right here, a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Don't worship me. Worship God, the angel says to him. Don't worship the messenger who delivers the message. Worship the God who reveals it and who sent him. Don't worship the servant. Worship the master. And Jesus is that master, see? Jesus is that God, not just a man, not merely an angel reflecting the glory of heaven. He is the most high God himself. He is the king of all. He is the Lord of the universe. He is the one who is alone worthy of our worship, of our lives, of our submission and our trust and our obedience and our praise. How easy is it in this world for us, to, for us to do what John did and ascribe the worship that only Jesus is worthy of to something else, to someone else? 
I mean, John did it sort of innocently, didn't he? He got, a, he got a little overwhelmed, that's understandable. He got a little mixed up because this angelic messenger was showing him such glorious things. And still the, the, the angel rebuked him and corrected him and emphasized how utterly and absolutely important it is to give worship to God alone. To be consumed, see, with the greatness of the glory of God so much that we would never ever think of ascribing worship to anyone or anything except Him. To be so enamored of His holiness and mercy that no other love could come close to competing with love for Him in our hearts. That's the point. That's what the book of Revelation's for. And yet how often and how easily, and not so innocently as John, how often do we do that? We look at the things that God has made, the things of this world, and, 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 and in our sin even, and people who are desperately enslaved to sin, they even look on things that have become fundamentally wicked and corrupt and debased, and the sinful flesh says, I, I want those things. That, that's what I need more than I need God and His Word and His holiness. I need what those things offer to me more than what God offers to me. Our flesh says my heart can't be satisfied. My life can't be complete with Christ alone. I need something more. I need something else. That's what Satan whispers into our ear. That's what our sinful flesh wants And loves to hear. And that's what our sinful flesh says. Every time we worship self instead of Christ. Every time we give His glory to someone else. Every time we prefer our own way to His way. Or something or someone to Him. And so the message is, behold your God in all of His glory. As the book of Revelation reveals Him. He's the Alpha and the Omega, verse 13 says. Those are the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet, which was the language that John wrote this book in 2,000 years ago. It means exactly what it says it means. He's the first and He's the last. He's the beginning and He's the end. He's everything. He's the one who created this whole world and He's the one who is going to come and bring it all to an end and make it all new. He's the one who existed before all creation as the eternal God and He's the one who will sovereignly rule and reign over the new creation for all of eternity. Verse 16 says He's he's both the root and the descendant of David. He's both David's son and David's Lord. The one who fulfills the promise of God to David of an everlasting kingdom of peace and righteousness and the one who made that promise to David in the first place. Jesus is all of that. He's the bright and morning star, it says. That's a a reference all the way back to the book of Numbers. When God prophesied of one who would come and rise up out of the tribe of Jacob and sovereignly rule over all of the nations bringing peace everywhere. That's who Jesus is. He is that King. And it is with His sovereign scepter that He rules over all of creation with all glory and majesty of the God who He is. He's the sovereign one. 
Look at verse 10. Verses 10 and 11 highlight this in another way also. John's told in verse 10 not to seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, which is a reference back to something that God told Daniel in Daniel chapter 12, except it was the opposite then. God also revealed great truths to to Daniel thousands of years ago while Daniel was living in exile in ancient Babylon. God revealed truth to Daniel about what was coming in the future. What would happen at at the very end of human history when the dead would be raised and final judgment would come and eternal life would be given to the ones whose names were written in the book. But Daniel wasn't allowed to give the details. Well, when would this happen? How would this all take place? Who would have their names written in the book? What book? How does your name come to be written in the book? Daniel wasn't allowed to disclose any of those details yet. God said, seal it all up until the time of the end. See, God has had this this plan and purpose and revelation since Daniel's day, since before, since eternity passed, in his sovereign wisdom and, and in his decree. And now the time of the end has come. Jesus has been raised. Jesus has been enthroned. Jesus is opening the seals. This is it. This is the final era of the history of this world that we're in the middle of right now. All that remains is His return. And in the meantime, He reigns sovereignly from heaven. Verse 11, in this final phase of the history of this world, the sovereign Lord Jesus says, let the evildoer still do evil. Let the filthy still be filthy. Let the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. Again, that's a quote from Daniel chapter 12 about the end of days. It's not a command that authorizes evil people to do evil. God's commanding people to repent while there's still time. This is a statement about the fact that in this final age, in these last days, which is what the book of Hebrews calls this time that we're living in, Jesus Christ, the true God, the Alpha and the Omega, is the one who sovereignly determines who is going to turn from their sins and be holy and who is going to remain in their sins and be judged. And in both cases, merciful salvation and just judgment, in both cases, Jesus, the sovereign God, is glorified because He's at the center. Everything revolves around Him. His glory is ultimately what matters. It's always all about Jesus. He's the great prophet, revealing all the sovereign purposes of God. He is the eternal sovereign God. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the root and descendant of David. He is the bright and morning star risen to rule the whole world. And He is coming. And He is coming soon. Verse 7 Behold, he says, I am coming soon. Verse 12, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me. Verse 20, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming 
soon. You know what that word soon means? Yep. It's exactly what it means. It means quickly. It means swiftly. It means, it means speedy. You remember in Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son? Same word is used in that story as, as is used here. The father ran out to meet him. The father was so glad that the prodigal son had come home. And so the father said to his servants, Go quickly and get my best robe to put on my son. Same word. Don't, don't lollygag. Don't dilly-dally. Get it done. Matthew 28, After Jesus had been buried and the women went to the tomb and found it empty, the angel who told them that Jesus was risen said, Go quickly. <laughs> Same word. Go quickly and tell the disciples. Did they go, well, I think I'll stop at Starbucks first. Got a few things to do before I go tell the disciples that Jesus is risen. No, they went quickly. Same word. Soon means soon. Quick means quick. But remember, the time frame and the perspective on time is ultimately God's and not ours. In His omniscience and in His sovereignty, God doesn't perceive time in the same way that we do in our finiteness. We have a very limited and myopic view of time. Our whole lives tend to last less than a hundred years here in this world. So anything longer than that seems like forever to us, right? But God's scale doesn't, God doesn't have a scale. God's scale doesn't stop at a hundred or a thousand or any other number. God's time frame is infinite. So to him, a thousand years is, is, is a day to us. And that's even speaking metaphorically. A thousand years is a blip on the time scale of the infinite almighty God. So when he says, I'm coming quickly, he doesn't necessarily mean according to our time scale and expectations and hopes. He just means that we can rest assured that He will not delay. We can trust that when His sovereign purposes for this world are fulfilled, He will surely come. Just as chapter 19 describes. As I've said to you in the past, even more certainly than the sun rises in the east, Jesus will return. And of course... We don't have any way of knowing exactly when that will be. No one does except God Himself. Could be another 2,000 years from now. Could be another 10,000 years from now. Could be any time now. The whole point is that Jesus wants to both assure us that He is coming and that He won't delay. And He wants also to give us a sense of urgency in our lives while we wait. So... Jesus then gives us these exhortations here in the rest of chapter 22. Exhortations to do things. Exhortations for us to be urgently occupied with certain things in our lives while we wait for Him to come. First, verse 14. Jesus says, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have the right to the tree of life and that they might enter the city by the gates. Back in chapter 7, there is this great multitude of people who are pictured. All the saints of God, having come through all of the tribulations 
of life in this sin-cursed world, but having been faithful, having endured to the end, and they're standing forever blessed in the presence of God, and they're wearing robes that have been made white with the blood of the Lamb. So here, now, Jesus is referring to people who have put their faith in Jesus for salvation, and he's emphasizing the great urgency of doing that. You don't know when Jesus is going to return. You can't wait to to get straight with God through repentance and faith in Jesus. You might think that you can live just fine without Him, but again, you cannot afford to die without Him, like Spurgeon said. And neither can you afford to be caught unprepared when He comes, which could be at any time. And so it applies to us too, who already have put our faith in Jesus for salvation, because white robes, remember in Revelation, don't just refer to being saved by grace alone through faith alone. It doesn't just refer to forgiveness and justification. It also refers to sanctification, which we learned in chapter 19 a few weeks ago. Because the bride, dressed in fine white linens, is said to have been given these linens to prepare herself for the coming of the bridegroom, by putting on the righteous deeds of the saints. So that's sanctification, right? That's increasing holiness in life. That's growing obedience. That's that's escalating mortification of the sin that remains in us daily, putting off all that is fleshly and putting on the righteousness of Christ more and more and and being fueled more and more by the grace and the mercy and the love of Jesus and the, the power of the living active word and the Holy Spirit to conform us to the image of Christ's glory from from one level to the next. This is what life's all about. You gotta ask yourselves, Christians, are you prepared for his coming? Are you constantly, as he himself proclaims in in Matthew 24 and 25, are you filling your lamp with the oil that the Holy Spirit provides so that the light of his glory is shining brightly from your life all the time and more and more? Or do you kind of let the light dwindle a little bit because you're too preoccupied with the things of this world? Or do you hide the light sometimes because you're ashamed of it in this world? Or do you hide the light sometimes because you're afraid of counting the cost of letting it shine? Are your robes white with the holiness and righteousness of Jesus Christ? Or do you give yourself permission to sully them and dirty them with worldliness and sin, which you harbor sometimes in your life? And let it go unchecked and unresolved. Just think about it in light of the soonness, the quickness of the return of Jesus. At any given moment of any given day of your life, would what you're doing right then with your time and in your life, would that be something that you would be proud for Jesus to see if he returned right then? Because whether or not he does, he can see it still. Be prepared first. Second, verse 17, the Spirit, Holy Spirit, the Spirit and the Bride, church, body of Jesus, say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let one who is 
thirsty, come and let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Now that verse is not talking about Jesus coming. It's talking about us pleading with people in this world to come to faith in Jesus and in repentance before he returns because then it will be too late. That's describing the Holy Spirit calling people to living faith in Christ as the bride, as the church of Jesus calls them to repent and believe and proclaims the gospel. Jesus is coming soon. Jesus is coming quickly, bringing recompense, which means to repay each one for what he has done. We remember those books that he's going to open. That means everlasting condemnation for anyone whose name is not written in the other book, the the book of life. And so the bride, who has been made whiter than snow by the free gift of the redeeming blood of Jesus, needs to be saying, come to Jesus, to the dying world. Come all who are thirsty and drink of this water of life that He is. It's free. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to work for it. It's a gift of God. It's of His grace. It's it's by unconditional love. And not only do you not have to earn it, nothing that you've done disqualifies you from receiving this gift and drinking this water of life if you'll just come. So come. Come. Isn't it so encouraging that as we call people in this world to come through the gospel, through the plea, come to Jesus and repent of your sins, as we we give that call for people to come, that, that at our back is the Holy Spirit calling them to come? The Spirit and the bride, if it's just up to the bride to say come, it could be pretty discouraging to go out there and tell people to come to Jesus. But when the Holy Spirit's saying come with you, Man, that's encouraging. Because when the Holy Spirit calls, He changes hearts. He opens blind eyes. He raises the dead. You just have to open your mouth. So while Jesus is giving you time, don't neglect the call of the gospel to this dying world. And then thirdly, verses 18 and 19, Jesus gives this exhortation to his church while we await his return. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. That's scary language. And most scholars agree that he's not just talking about the book of Revelation here. He is, but he's also talking about the other 65 books of God's holy word as well. And giving this warning that certainly to subtract from it, to not proclaim the whole counsel of God, to say, well, there's stuff in here that's unpopular and people don't want to hear, and it's not very nice unless we leave it out or twist it and distort it and make it palatable, to do that is dangerous business. But also to add to it. To say, you know what else we need? 
besides God's word? More revelations, more words of knowledge, more truth that God hasn't revealed here. To do that is dangerous business. The reality is that this book of Revelation refers to every other part of Scripture in all of its pages, from from every corner of Scripture, cover to cover, as it's revealing to us how all of God's Word is fulfilled in Jesus Christ and in His church, and, and how it will be fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth. So when Jesus says, whoever hears the words of the prophecy of this book, He's probably talking about the book of Revelation. And then when he says, if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, sort of flipping the language, he probably means the whole Bible. And the message is crystal clear. You can't add anything or take anything away from God's holy word. How presumptuous is it to say God, what God has revealed here is not enough. And we need to supplement it and augment it with something else. So anyone who comes and says that they have the prophetic gift of further revelation, you can just stop talking to them or tell them to repent. Certainly anyone who would say there's things in this book that we shouldn't ever speak of or is ashamed to declare God's word. is in deep trouble with God Himself. It's a grave warning. And it's a call for great discernment because we know that that the false prophet in this book, that false teachers in this world, wolves in sheep's clothing, as Jesus refers to them, we know that they will abound in these last days. They will come tickling people's ears, Paul warns Timothy, telling people what they want to hear instead of faithfully proclaiming what God actually says in His Word. They'll lead people astray. They'll confuse people with cleverly devised myths and fables. They'll introduce new and destructive heresies. They'll call evil good and good evil. They'll deny truth clearly revealed in God's Word. They'll promote falsehood that points away from God and away from the Gospel and away from holiness and leads straight into the jaws of judgment and the lake of fire. And it's going on everywhere today. You have to have discernment. In 21st century America, the the pure truth of God's Word and God's law and God's Gospel is becoming more and more unpopular and rejected, less tolerated, more perverted. And so the temptation is growing stronger and stronger to compromise, to affirm what the world insists on. And to keep our mouths shut and our heads down about the truth that God's word proclaims which the world hates. Because no matter how unpopular it is, we have to stand firm. Because God's truth, God's word, is the only word that leads to everlasting life. And nothing in this world that you can gain by compromising God's word is worth the eternal cost of doing that. And so the message is simple of chapter 22 and of the entire book of Revelation. Keep the glory of God in your sights at all times. Keep the things that are above, eternal, unseen as your priorities all the time. And be prepared 
for His coming by pursuing holiness and relentlessly crucifying sin in your life all the time and be calling the world to come to Jesus while there's still time and be discerning about the truth and the veracity of anything anybody says out there compared to all that God has revealed in His living and active Word. Stand firm, especially in these evil days. The disdain that the world has for the truth of God can't intimidate you. And in fact, it ought to embolden you because whatever the world says they're going to do to you if you stand for the truth of God's Word is is not nearly as scary as what God does to those who stand contrary to His Word, who add to it or subtract from it. And so if the, if the world tries to intimidate you, that should embolden you. Because it just confirms the great contrast and antithesis that Revelation shows us between Jesus' kingdom and the kingdom of this world. And reminds you who you belong to as the bride of Christ, not the harlot Babylon. Stand firm and be bold to tell the world and to tell the earth dwellers to repent of their ungodliness and to come to Jesus. Stand firm and clothe yourself in pure white linen, the righteousness and the holiness and the glory of Jesus Christ because it's always all about him. Let's pray together, and then we'll sing his praises. Our God, thank you for your word, and thank you that it is your word. We praise you that we know that this is the God-breathed word, that these are not the words of men on their own, that these are the words that the Holy Spirit poured out through them, that this is the very living, active word of God, and not just words of men about God that are susceptible to error. And we praise you that your word is sufficient and we praise you that your word reveals to us all that we need to know for life and godliness. And so, Father, we pray that you would encourage us by your word, that you would strengthen us by your word, that you would help us to remain pure by your word, that you would help us to run with endurance, and that you would help us to be faithful as salt and light in this world and to be calling people to come. And so, Father, we pray, build your church, even in the darkness of the darkest places in this world. Let the light of your truth and your love and your mercy shine through your church, we pray. And glorify yourself and keep us until the end, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.